You're listening to the Opening Statements Podcast, brought to you by HyperChat Social, the podcast bringing you real lawyers and their real stories. I'm Laura. And I'm Rebecca. And I'm producer Evan. This week, our guest is Lindley Jones, the first woman lawyer in the United States to be board certified in legal malpractice by the American Board of Professional Liability Attorneys. She is the former president of the Georgia Trial Lawyers Association, named a Georgia super lawyer many times over by Atlanta Magazine, and she is one of the top 50 female lawyers in Georgia. Yeah, and today, her most prestigious honor, she joins the Opening Statements podcast. Court is now in session. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Yeah, yeah. We are so excited to have you. I've been talking about it for a while. Yes. Um, <laughs> so just like a little bit of getting to know you for our listeners. Why do you do law? Like you're in a very specific area, but like why law in general? How did you get there? I um, had set out to be an investigative journalist and um, loved it very much, loved the search for the truth piece Mm -hmm. of that. Um, And when I got out of college, things didn't go as planned. I didn't land the fabulous job I had hoped. And I thought, well, you know, it wouldn't hurt me to have a law degree to be an investigative journalist. That can only help, right? Yeah. So I started going to law school and then I fell in love with the law and the particular kind of law I do has a big element of search for the truth in it. So mm-hmm. I think it's uh, always been sort of consistent in that way. So fun. Okay. I, you know, I like that your backup plan was law school. I know. <laughs> a lot of <laughs> people have a, have a backup plan for if law school doesn't work out for them. That, that was yeah. your backup plan. Which, I mean, strikes, my jaw dropped. Yeah. When you said no, I like, strikes the question of if you weren't doing it, what would you be doing? We kind of know that. Like, would, is that what you would be doing? Yes. I yeah. would be an investigative journalist, yes. So you mentioned your area of law requires a lot of investigating, searching for the truth. Tell us about your area of law. So I practice in plaintiff's legal malpractice, and that means I bring claims against other lawyers who screw up cases, and uh, I have to get to the bottom of that, and I have to do that search for the truth and that uh, search for justice and bring justice to clients who have, had, who have been wronged by lawyers. Super cool. <laughs> and that's super interesting. Oh, Very funny. noble, too. I feel like that's like a tough. I mean, yeah. when you're talking about like the law going against uh, more lawyers is, uh, you know, about as challenging as it gets, probably. Well, I don't know. It's um, to me, it comes pretty naturally. I've always had a, uh, a strong sort of truth barometer and I, I can have a pretty good feel for um, when I'm dealing with an honest broker or when something is. Um, awry uh, when I I have a pretty good um, nose for bullshit to tell you the truth and <laughs> um, so that you know that's consistent with being either an investigative journalist or a plaintiff's legal malpractice lawyer or you know I, I feel that um, I can do a pretty good job most of the time of getting to the bottom of things and then once you get to the bottom of things it's, it's easier to get justice because all juries are looking for really is for someone to to let them get to the bottom of it and help them get to the bottom right. of it so that they can render justice. That's what they want to do once they figure out that they're not going to get out of jury duty. Is there Was there ever a point in time where you maybe didn't want to do the plaintiff side? Never. Never? <laughs> no. What was the evolution? So when you went to law school, did you know you were going to get into this particular field? Or did that evolve over time with you just learning more about it? 
Oh, goodness, not at all. Um, you know, legal malpractice is very niche, and there yeah. are very few practitioners in the field, and it wasn't on my radar or really anyone's radar at all uh, back in the early 1990s when I was going to law school. I knew I wanted to do trial work. Um, I was really interested at that point in doing criminal defense, mm. and I did some internships and so forth for criminal defense lawyer. And then I realized that although it might be very rewarding to represent um, people who did not commit the crime they were accused of, the fact was most of my clients were going to be criminals. Um, that didn't dawn on me at first. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I thought, well, you know, I don't want to have to have five locks on my law office door yeah. Yeah. and everything that comes with that. And so um, from there, I thought, what, what is it I can do to help people get justice and, and to um, – sort of let my justice gene thrive. Uh, and so I started looking at personal injury and became a personal injury lawyer. Um, and it wasn't long after I started doing personal injury that I sort of fell into a couple of legal malpractice cases. Oh. And from there, uh, there was a lawyer in Atlanta at the time. His name was Taylor Jones. Great lawyer. No kin to me. <laughs> I was going to um, ask. Which is, you know, I, I hear it even to this day. People are like, oh, you're Taylor Jones's daughter. And while it's very flattering, um, I'm not. He does have a wonderful daughter. But um, he passed away several years ago. But he uh, was at the forefront of plaintiff's legal malpractice in the state of Georgia. He was that brave soul who went out there and did the work that no one else would do and most everyone else was scared to do and he understood um and i i shared this conviction that we as lawyers have to hold ourselves to the same standards as everybody else yeah and if you harm someone through your negligence regardless of what it is you do for a living um you're liable for the consequences of that and so he uh helped me along in the field and i became of counsel to him and eventually went out on my own Awesome. I have to unpack negligence because I hear we listen to a lot of like murder podcasts. Yeah. But um And talk to a lot of lawyers. And talk to a lot of lawyers. <laughs> I have so many questions for you. But you yeah. hear about when someone gets convicted of something and then they appeal it because of negligence or someone who wasn't doing their job, maybe they didn't I don't know, I don't have a good example off the top of my head. But like is that different? Like than what you do? Well, not entirely. And um, what you're talking about is the negligence of a lawyer to provide proper representation mm-hmm. in the context of a criminal case, typically criminal defense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and those can be legal malpractice cases, but there are other remedies for that in the criminal justice system when you have had incompetent representation by a criminal defense lawyer. And so those cases are actually rare. Most all the cases that I pursue um, involve other types of civil actions. And that's where things get really, really interesting in my field Mm -hmm. because, um, you know, I can get a call one day about a lawyer who screwed up a construction contract. The next day I get a call about a lawyer who screwed up a personal injury case, and I know those back and forth. Maybe the next day is um, a discrimination case or, I mean, you name it, a maritime case. And when these cases come in, I'm not an expert in all those fields, obviously. Nobody is. But but I hire an expert in that field Mm -hmm. to be my consultant, and then I'm, of course, an expert in legal malpractice, and I can pursue and bring those claims. So 
no two days are alike. It is, it is, they're just, just never a boring day. That's the dream, right? Like you don't want to be bored at work. Yeah. 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 So what was your first case like? My first legal malpractice case because I was doing personal injury. I was going to say, I was like, we could kind of go from like start at criminal, then go to personal, (laughs) and then go to legal malpractice. Yeah, that well, that's an interesting question. I'll I'll tell you, um, I'll tell you about my first trial. Okay, tell us about it. My first trial um, was for uh, a man in his mid fifties who had worked hard at a manual labor job his entire life. Um, He was an African American man in a rural jurisdiction that was predominantly white at that time. And um, one thing I've always uh, taken great joy in is trying and handling cases outside the metro area. Um, There are fewer lawyers available to do that. Mm. And in my experience, um, many of my clients from outside the metro area uh, have had to jump through extra hurdles to to find me and get me and hire me. And they're Mm. special people. And... um, this particular man had been injured in a car wreck. He wasn't horribly or catastrophically injured. In fact, he only had about uh, $1,400 in chiropractic bills okay. before a manual labor. That was, at that time, which has been a while, yeah. um, was about three weeks' wages, and it had thrown his wow. family into um, a position where they had uh, one thing had led to another. And, you know, when you live paycheck to paycheck and you miss three paychecks, that's a big that's deal. A big that's deal, devastating. Yeah. So, but but it wasn't the kind of case that anybody wanted to handle, and it was obviously going to trial because big insurance wasn't going to pay his claim. Um, and so I was glad to to be able to represent him and to take his little old case to trial. And we picked the jury, and I put him on the stand, and he did a great job. And he put in, I put in his fourteen hundred dollars of chiropractic bills. He had gotten all better. That he was asking for that in his pain and suffering, which is what you do, right? Mm-hmm. And a little bit of lost wages. Um, and the jury came back, and they awarded him $1,400. And I'll never forget how I felt at that moment when it dawned on me that that jury believed he was in the wreck. They believed he was injured in the wreck because mm-hmm. they were willing to give him his medical bills. They just didn't think that man's pain and suffering was worth anything. Oh. And I just resolved right then and there that I had to learn to do it better. I had to learn to... Um, represent people and get them the results they deserved by convincing and, and helping a jury to understand um, the the equality we all have when it comes to things like pain and suffering. Yeah. Um, but that was my first jury trial. So they didn't give him lost wages no. either? It was just, just the, medical the medical. Wow. When you talk about, you know, needing to do a better job, right, what does that look like? Is that a, like, I need to find, like, the moral way to do this, a way, you know, what what kind of appeal are you looking at? You know. Well, Evan, always the moral way. Well, certainly, yeah, certainly. Well, never. I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't mean like let's do some under. No, no, I don't mean like She's underhanded. Like, stop recording. No, no, no. I mean Let me like show you what's in my pocketbook. I mean, this is, is how it I get what I need. an appeal to morals? Not like you know, do you go back and threaten them or anything? Not like that, you know. Or is it like technical? I guess. Um, that's that's an interesting question uh, because after 30 years of training myself to be a trial lawyer and to be a better trial lawyer, it's both. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and and learning to speak to people about things like the elephant in the room, mm-hmm. like, all right, I understand that uh, everybody on this jury is of a different race, which was the case in that instance, mm-hmm. um, and having the candid conversations with the jury about our equality, our humanity, 
um, the experiences that we all share. Uh, and, and I feel that um, I was too young and experienced to feel comfortable at that point in my life addressing that issue at all. Sure. And now mm. I, I don't hesitate. So during a recent trial, you want to talk about a recent trial? Yes. Yeah, sure during a recent trial, I was representing a British citizen. Oh. Now, this British citizen um, di- didn't, you know, until she opened her mouth and you heard her English accent, you wouldn't have any idea. She wasn't from Atlanta. You know, there, there was nothing um, particularly distinctive about her appearance, but she was British citizen. So I'm selecting the jury, and I, I do um, tell them that she's a British citizen, and her case is for um, the, a botched-up immigration process that her mm-hmm. lawyer screwed up and then hid and covered up and all that. And um, whole story. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Much to my surprise, there were two individuals on that jury panel who said, I am not willing to give a jury to someone who's not an American citizen. What? A, a jury verdict. And I was shocked. I hadn't seen that coming. Um, but at this point in my career, I knew what to do. And I just asked the entire panel of potential jurists, is there anybody else who agrees? And a couple of other hands went up. And that was very shocking to me. Wow. I feel like that is very surprising. Uh, But you never know, right? You never know when you're trying jury cases. So I brought that out, and I talked to them about that and and, um, the right of all people to seek justice in our courts if they're legally entitled to do so. Um, One of those people wound up on our jury after I had really, in the process of jury selection, talked through what her issue was, um, and we got a great verdict for, for this client. So... That's an example of uh, how I've sort of evolved in handling those kinds of issues. That is so crazy. Like the wide variety of things you deal with in every case, like immigration, like you've got personal, it's, I mean, contracts, it's like everything. I mean, she was not kidding about it not being boring. There is something new. I also never thought about someone who's not a citizen being able to, I don't know. It's just interesting. I, I I'm going to like have like, like a, a meltdown, but it's interesting because it's not like she was, it wasn't criminal defense. Yeah. It was an issue over her trying, trying to, to go here. through the proper immigration channels. And she had a bad, you know, experience with an attorney who didn't do his job. Like, it's not like it, she, you were, I don't know. She wasn't, it wasn't a criminal defense of someone from, you know, a non-citizen. So did she end right. up just losing, like she... Her application got denied by USCIS or? Yes. And then she was not allowed to return for an extended period of time. And she is an Emmy Award winning wildlife movie producer. And she lost tremendous opportunities during that time, including a contract with National Geographic. Wow. So it was a a big deal. It was a life changing deal. It was a high value case. Um, but more importantly, it was a career-changing case mm-hmm. for a woman who had worked her entire life to get where she was. Wow. That's crazy. That is stunning. So in those cases, you're maybe going after lost wages, an opportunity, pain, suffering, probably. But is there anything you can do to help her appeal the decision that the government had made? No, we don't get involved in what we call the underlying case. So you can think of legal malpractice cases as two cases in one in most instances. You have the original case, um, which may be, you know, in that case, immigration. Um, And if there's still a way to salvage it, we have to do everything we can to mitigate the damages. That's not a conviction on my part. That's the law. you got to mitigate your damages before you can bring a legal malpractice case. So I often have to go and advise the client to hire 
whatever kind of lawyer it is to try to fix what's broken. Sure. Um, And that was the case in that instance and in many others. Um, And so in that case, I would refer her to an immigration, a reputable, talented immigration lawyer who tries to fix it. And when it can't be fixed, only when it can't be fixed, am I interested in bringing a legal malpractice case because a legal malpractice action is really an action of last resort when nothing else has worked. You really um, want, and I I think all of us should want, for a person who's entitled to justice in the underlying case to get it in the underlying case. Right. I settled a case um, earlier this week uh, in which the client had a claim against the city of Loganville, but his lawyer botched anti-litem notice not once, not twice, but three times. And at the end of it, he, he wound up having to sue that lawyer in that very, very large law firm. Um, and we were able to resolve it. But at the end of the matter, he said, all I really wanted was for the city to be held liable and responsible and um, he wanted his initial case resolved. He wanted his initial case. They all, all anybody wants yeah. is their initial case. Nobody wants to bring a legal malpractice case. It's longer. It's more complicated. It's more expensive, um, and 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 it's more challenging. So it's never option number one. It's always a last resort. Gotcha. Yeah. Is it oftentimes, or what's the the split ratio? Is it a lot of intentional negligence, or is it oftentimes unintentional? Did he botch it three times in a row? Not Oops. purposely, but like something he could have easily. Did he fit. mail it in? Yeah, yeah, you know, like was it? <laughs> well, um, I I don't think there's any reason to believe in in that instance that it was anything other than uh, probably gross incompetence. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's how I call it. Um, so yeah, that's but, a legal term for it. Yeah. Right? <laughs> But there are other instances where it's just not so clear to me. But it doesn't matter because um, in the end, the insurance policies cover negligence. And so I typically sue for insurance proceeds from professional liability carriers. And so I'm suing for negligence. Um, uh, You know, unfortunately, the reality is that so often lawyers who commit negligence um, wind up complicating the case in their lives by uh, an intentional cover-up. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. That uh, is, and and you would be amazed how often I see this. I mean, uh, I, and the ridiculousness of the cover-ups. I've had clients call me. I I had a client call me and say, I just want to check with you. My lawyer's such a nice guy. And I I live, yeah, I live down here in South Georgia. um, And I, I know that um, lawsuits take a long time, but it's been nine years, and I was just wondering uh, what I should do because now he's not returning my phone calls anymore. Uh oh! But for nine years, he'd been returning her phone calls and giving her updates on the case. He never filed. He never filed. Never it? filed it. That is not as unusual a scenario as you would expect. Are you kidding? That happened. I get those calls now. Let me preface this by saying I love lawyers. The vast majority of lawyers do a great job, but I do get um, in excess of a thousand calls about legal malpractice a year. Wow! Um, and out of those, there are always every year a number of those that involve a lawyer who is stringing a client along with updates on a case that never got filed or has long since been dismissed. But what's that, the what's purpose? The point? Yeah. Do they like collect retainer fees from the client? Like. 
what is the point of doing Stringing that? Stringing them along, yeah. It's the inability to admit the malpractice, the inability to really, I think, face themselves as much as face the client with what they've done. You know, it's not easy to become a lawyer. Mm-hmm. It's, it's hard work. And you spend a lot of your life and probably a lot of your money becoming a lawyer. And most all of them, that is, people who become lawyers, do it because they want to do good things for people and they want to do a good job at whatever area it is they do. And so it's devastating to, I think, the, the ego, and I don't say that in the contemporary sense, but like the sort of Freudian sense, to the ego of a human being to invest that much in an effort and fail. And, and I think that it is just so devastating that a lot of lawyers just sort of um, manage to put it out of their minds and back burner it, give occasional updates, and just move forward and hope it's never discovered, just hope. I, I, that, that it never comes out. I mean, surely it always comes out. Well, I mean, it took nine years. I mean, right, like yeah, somebody was saying, but... surely it'll come out for nine years. Yeah. Like, wow. That's a long Do, time. Are all attorneys required to have professional liability insurance coverage? You know, is that common that they will always have that? Oh, what a big question. No, they do not. Really? And in fact, the State Bar of Georgia um, uh, let me organize a committee that studied this um, uh, and subsequently had a, another chair of that committee. But we studied it for three years, um, a, a committee of up to 16 lawyers who worked that issue very hard and tried very hard to convince the State Bar of Georgia and the Board of Governors that all lawyers, practicing lawyers, should be required to have professional liability insurance if they practice in any kind of a field where it would come into play. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had a lot of support, but not enough. And if you can believe this, last year the State Bar of Georgia voted not to require lawyers to carry professional liability insurance in Georgia. So, warning to consumers, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, because I will tell you that to a person, people out there who are not lawyers assume that lawyers are insured. Yes. Mm-hmm. And when I have to tell someone who had a catastrophic injury and hired a lawyer who screwed it up, who, who maybe even told them they screwed it up and apologized, but didn't write them a check to make up for it, that I'm sorry, we can't help you because they don't have insurance. Those people always, always say, I thought lawyers had to be insured. I did too. I would have thought so. In other industries and highly regulated, like the financial services industry, like they're required to have errors and emissions insurance, you know, for those purposes. Uh, I would have areas are required. Now, medical is a little bit different, but almost all of them have it because you can't be a member of a practice or have hospital privileges or these other things unless you have it. But if you are a solo lawyer out there practicing, there's, there's no one holding you accountable for having professional liability insurance and You'd be amazed. The, there are no statistics in, that are reliable as to how many lawyers in the state of Georgia are not insured because the state bar doesn't collect the data, hmm. which I think is a problem. Yeah. The insurance commissioner's office doesn't collect data in that way on how many people are insured by any insurance agency for anything or insurance company. Um, and so the data is not there. So what we did to estimate how many lawyers were uninsured when we were on this committee Um, was to use a combination of interviews with professional liability insurance agents, 
interviews with the insurance commissioner's office, interviews with lawyers, and our personal experience in about the rates um, at which lawyers are uninsured. And our best estimates are that one quarter to one third of all lawyers in the state of Georgia are not insured. Wow. Whoa. Wow. That is insane. I really totally was expecting that answer to be yes, and it was like a regulated yeah. process. I like so if someone does not have insurance, there's no case there. You can't go after their anything practice, else. Or, I don't know what you could go after. You like can. personal stuff? You can. Here's the problem. Um, and, and don't get me wrong. I have done that under, under two different scenarios. Um, I've done it in instances where I could, where the lawyer was successful enough that the client would clearly be able to collect the judgment I would get for them. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and so I could pursue it under those circumstances, although it's not ideal. Um, the other circumstance is when, uh, the interest of justice was so overwhelmingly compelling to me that I just said, "By God, I'm going to do whatever I can." Yeah, yeah. Um, and and that still happens, but it's it's rare. The vast majority, you can't afford to sue them because the first thing you have to do when you file a legal malpractice action is you have to file it with an affidavit from another lawyer who says malpractice was committed. Ah, well, that's where you start paying the expenses right there, mm-hmm. and then the expenses accrue. And if you can't collect anything at the back end, you know. Not only does the firm lose money, but the client loses money at the end of the day or doesn't recover at the end of the day. Um, So I only work on a contingency fee basis, Mm -hmm. which I love because my interests are always consistent with the interests of my client. If it's good for the client, if we can recover for the client, we can recover for the firm and we can go into it as a team. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I love that. So, So, you know, when I make those decisions, it's. It's hard, but it means that it wasn't good for the client or for the firm. Yeah, yeah. makes sense. Um, are there bar consequences with a legal malpractice suit? There can be. Um, and there are lawyers who specialize in filing and or defending bar grievances. Um, there are some instances in which my cases result uh, in bar grievances filed by my clients, either by me or another lawyer, more commonly another lawyer. Um, but but not for negligence. Bar grievances, um, unless it's gross negligence, involve a violation of the Georgia Rules of Professional Conduct. Sure. Um, okay. And that's not always in play. Gotcha. Do What's the split between these types of cases going to trial or, or settling? The vast majority of these cases do not go to trial, but they get thoroughly worked up, ready to go to trial. The reason they don't go to trial, I think, perhaps a somewhat higher rate than other cases is because by the time you're about to enter a courtroom, you've got a lawyer defendant who's educated about the law, who should be able to evaluate their own case at some point. Yeah. You've got them defended by a top notch legal malpractice defense lawyer. Cause remember the lawyers who defend lawyers, Oh, they're the best of the best. Right. Yeah. And, and then you've got my client um, who, may have come to realize that their case is not perfect, no case is. And so that dynamic of participants makes these cases, I think, more likely to resolve than my personal injury cases, which I still take and try. And I take them because I love my clients and that kind of work, and I I don't, it's not a huge percentage of my practice, but it's an important part of my practice. Um, It's an important part also because I get to the courtroom more often. 
And it is important to me to be in the courtroom more often and to be on my feet and picking juries and doing openings and closings and examinations and so on and so forth um, because I don't think it would be a good thing for me or my clients if I only entered a courtroom every 10 years. Sure. That makes a lot of sense. If you had to give an individual, you know, three questions that they may not consider asking an attorney, I think we've got professional liability insurance as one, you know, what would those three questions be like when they're seeking to hire an attorney? Oh, good question. Number one, how often should I expect to communicate with you? Mm. Okay. So that they know, you know, there are clients who want to communicate every day. Now that's not realistic. Yeah. And 99% right of all, okay, right, right, right. How often should I expect to communicate with you? What do you anticipate the the course of my case being now that can't be wholly predicted but it can be predicted to a large extent depending on the kind of case so that they know going in what to expect now ideally those two questions are answered by the lawyer without the client having to ask right sure (laughs) Um, but but then unfortunately the third one is um do you carry professional liability insurance so that if any mistake is made i'm protected that's good. And I like adding, that's a good way of asking that question too, yes. you know, with that, that I'm protected. Yeah. It's not like, yeah. It, yeah. It's not just saying I'm expecting you to make a mistake. Yeah. But, and I'm not going to sue you. It's just, I listened to the opening statements podcast and, this and, is what they <laughs> and I heard, I need to ask this question. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, but what you're, what you're getting at about the awkwardness of the question is so funny when you think about it and you're absolutely right about the awkwardness of it, but we don't hesitate to ask for that information on a roofer. Heck, if somebody's yes, got yeah. to put a roof on your house, you say, by all means, we want to make sure you have insurance for for the workers and all of that. Like, every, that's just what you do. Yeah, and very so true. this needs to become part of what legal malpractice, uh, legal consumers do. Mm-hmm. Are there states that do require insurance? Yes, Oregon has always required insurance. Okay. Um, and there are a couple of others where it's seriously in play, but it's it's not common. Because lawyers govern lawyers. Mm. And that is, yeah. that is a wonderful thing, um, and it's a wonderful power over the profession that is afforded by the state of Georgia and other states to the lawyers. But my concern is that when the lawyers fail to police our own profession, that the state at some point is going to say, we need to take this over. Georgia legal consumers are not protected, and the, and the state bar is not doing its job. Yeah. Why do you think they don't have it? Like a third is a big number. There's a mix of reasons. In most instances, I think they have not prioritized it. And I say that understanding that there are lawyers, um, I was once one, who don't make a lot of money Mm. and who... um, for whom legal malpractice insurance is is a fairly big expense. Now, (laughs) that being said, it's not nearly as expensive as lawyers think it's going to be, as uninsured lawyers think it's going to be. Um, But more often than not, I I find that um, there are other sometimes visible expenses that those lawyers have been willing to take on yeah. <laughs> uh, other than professional liability insurance to protect their clients. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, don't, don't drive up in your new Mercedes. Tell me about how you don't have the $1,500 right. for your professional liability yeah. insurance. And, and that's not unusual. And you would be surprised some of the big names, some of the big advertising names who don't have professional liability insurance. And that's where you really assume they do. Yeah. Do you think it's 
ego in some sense. Like, I'm not going to mess up. I don't need this. Um, there are those. Yes. Um, I sued a very prominent lawyer who that's all it was. Oh. Like, uh, easily could have afforded it. Oh, yeah. yes, yes, Which yes. Which is like, oh, I'm the best. I... Yes. And, you know, he at the end of the day, after a couple of years, he did the right thing and took care of it. But, yes, it was all that. Um, I think that uh, that it is... Um, not ingrained enough in our um, legal culture that it is shameful not to have it. Mm. And it is indeed shameful not to have it. So, for example, um, the Georgia Trial Lawyers Association, uh, I, I would love to see my dear and close friends at the association require proof of insurance as a term of membership. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's a great place um, so, to start. Right? Yeah. You know, we, we love all our trial lawyers. We also love Georgia legal consumers because we are trial lawyers. So let's make sure we're all insured. Um, and, and other organizations could do the same thing. In fact, those organizations, any organization you can think of for lawyers could require that as a, sure. as a term of joining the organization, just like they might want to know your state bar number. So they know you're actually a lawyer, right? Yes. Yeah. No, I mean, that's a great place to start. What is the process for doing that? I'm sure you've been working on it. Like, well, you know, I'm always working <laughs> on it. Yes, yes, yes. You know, there, there just has to be a consensus. I mean, look, organizations um, always strive to increase their numbers, and they always strive to bring everybody under the umbrella of membership. And so any anything that is exclusionary and removes people from that umbrella is resisted. Mm-hmm. Okay. Wow. Um, these are some of the fun ones. Um what is it like to sue other lawyers? Like, is that weird for you? Have you ever? How does it? Do you have a relationship with? Are you allowed to like sue your friends? <laughs> or is that a conflict <laughs> of interest? Okay, uh, that that depends. Um, if I am close enough with someone, then I have an immediate conflict of interest. And and the first thing we ask when someone calls my office with a prospective claim is, we need the name of the lawyer. Now. That's hard. These people are, um, they've been betrayed by a lawyer and yeah. their case has been mishandled. They don't know who I am. They've just probably heard about me from their lawyer. That's most of my cases come from lawyers. Uh, their lawyer, though? Uh, uh, no, so, some subsequent so, uh, lawyer. Some other one. Okay. Yes, some All other right. lawyer and they figured they out how to get They called for a second opinion. They're like, you need to call Lindley. Yes. Got you. Okay. Um, and so, uh, you know, m- most most of the calls come from those people uh, who have already been wronged by a lawyer. And so when one of the first questions they're asked is, who is the lawyer, they're scared to say. And yeah. especially if they're from a smaller area where it could have social and professional ramifications for right. them. Um, and and so, you know, we have to overcome that and get the name. And, and if it is the name of someone who's a close friend of mine, which... Uh, that, not the company. That, that's, not a, that's, not a, that's not a common <laughs> yeah. thing. But um, then, then I would have a conflict of interest. But... In my broader circle of friends, um, I would say that I have taken and brought those claims. And I think that it is, um, obviously, I represent the client and not that lawyer. Mm -hmm. But I think it is a service both to the client and the lawyer. Because there are um, lawyers out there who would take such a case and set out to destroy the lawyer, embarrass the lawyer. Mm -hmm. Um, That's not my goal. My goal is justice for my client, which doesn't require that right yeah Yeah. are legal malpractice cases public record once they are filed yes and occasionally before they are filed due to the nature of the malpractice 
Interesting. Um, what is the most common malpractice that you see? Missed deadlines, statutes of limitation, oh. anti-litem notices. Oh. Yeah, yeah. You've said anti-litem anti before. What is yes. that? So an anti-litem notice is um, when you sue a government entity, you are required to send notice, depending on whether it's a city, county, state, um, before you can file suit. And if that deadline is missed, you can't file the lawsuit. The same is true in, with certain deadlines in okay. um, employment discrimination cases and so forth. So it might be a, a, a technically a statute of limitations or a contractual limitation or um, a statutory limitation in some other kind of case. I gotcha. That's interesting. That makes me feel better, too, that it's to my earlier question about it being like an intentional negligence. You know, it just it feels less vicious <laughs> knowing <laughs> that it, you know, it's missed yeah. the deadlines. And, to, and then to your point about you don't have to drag them through the mud. I think as adults and professionals, you missed deadlines. These were the repercussions. You know, this is what needs to happen. Yeah. So This episode is brought to you by HyperChat Social, the attorney's social media marketing agency. From branding to lead generation, we have experts specializing in all areas of digital marketing, and we're ready to help you take your practice to the next level. Contact us today at 877-359-3399 or book a free consultation online at tryhyperchat.com. That's T-R-Y-H-Y-P-E-R-C-H-A-T dot com. Um, you just celebrated 30 years, yes. right, in the field or at your practice? At 30 years practicing law. Okay, perfect. So I know we talked a little bit and you sent me over some things that have changed in 30 years. So <laughs> tell me <laughs> yes, what it's been like being a, a woman in this industry, but also like you're – you're you're a big deal. You're oh, a badass, really. You. So, like, what is that like for you? Like, kind of pushing boundaries and like things that have changed over the years. Like, tell me, tell me about that. <laughs> um, there are still not enough women trial lawyers. There are still too many women who who get out of the game or can't make it in the game, it is not easy. It is an additional challenge. And it's a challenge to be a trial lawyer, and I love being a trial lawyer, but it's not an easy path, mm -hmm. right? Um, and to be a woman on top of that makes it additionally challenging. And I, I have hoped that I would see that change more in my lifetime than I have, but it has changed some. So that's good. Okay. Yep, um, some. We'll take the small wins. <laughs> that's, that's right. Um, but uh, it is it is still very difficult, and there are still um, areas in which it's just not as well received as I would like to see it. That's been one gift of being in a unique practice area, is that um, you know I don't have the challenges of trying to fit into a field that I may not naturally. Uh, be able to fit into as easily as a woman, which is a shame to have to say. Uh, but we know that there that there are whole fields in the practice of law where women just don't practice as long in those fields, and the and that is due uh, in significant part to the environments in those practice areas not being as friendly for women. I believe. So, what are some of the obstacles you've had to overcome over the years, just being a woman? There was a point when I. Um, left law school. Well, I mean, I, I was about to leave law school. It was actually my third year clerkship. Okay, so the summer before the third year, then I would graduate law school. I clerked for a construction law firm. Um, and 
it, and they were construction litigators. They were trial lawyers, but they did these big construction disputes. Um, and I found that really interesting, and I loved my clerkship. And at the end of the summer, um, it's the time when they offer you a job. And I'd worked my fanny off, got along great with everybody, thought, I am in like Flynn. Right? <laughs> I did not get an offer. Oh. And um, I was shocked, and I was told uh, by one of the partners on the down low that the partners had felt that I was too nice to be a trial lawyer. Oh. And I, I got think, you now. <laughs> well, the funny thing about that is um, that uh, it was very disappointing, obviously. And I do think that that was uh, based on my gender, that yep. um, we we can't win for losing, right? If I if I hadn't been pleasant to everyone, they would have called me something else, and I wouldn't yep. have gotten the job. And yeah. you know, it was that was a gender based discrimination, I believe. Um, and the partners at that firm with whom I kept in touch despite that, uh, it, it was only in very short order after that, maybe three or four years, before they began to tell me how sorry they were that that, that had happened and that they recognized um, that that was uh, unjust anyway. I don't know if they ever understood that it was really gender discrimination. Yeah. And then I got out and started practicing with a firm that did civil litigation and um, and the the partners at that firm made it clear that I would need to bring in my own business and that firm was also heavily uh construction law um and the the clients that they were bringing in were big construction companies and they were looking to me to be able to eventually generate that kind of business and I looked around and saw no diversity among the clients and understood what I think was the reality, which was that was going to mean no diversity among the lawyers those clients were going to hire. And I didn't see a path forward to success in that environment. Sure. Um, and, in fact, uh, there was a wonderful partner at that firm who, after I was there two years, set me down and said, I am so sorry to have to say this to you, but you deserve to know this because you've been working really hard. The guys here are never going to make you a partner. Mm. Doesn't matter how hard you work, mm. and, um, and that was my come to Jesus. And Th- that I, was your get out. <laughs> that was my get out, uh, and I, I, I loved that partner then, and I always have for for that very bold thing because that could have come back to haunt him and damage his career yeah. that he did that. Um, but I appreciated it, and I got out. <laughs> <laughs> when did you start your own practice? It was shortly after that. I started my own practice in 1995. Um, and I, uh, I started the practice with a partner who had been a law school buddy of mine and he lived down in Midtown and we advertised and creative loafing and Southern voice. And I mean, we were <laughs> scraping the bottom for clients, you know, oh my goodness. And, and we worked so hard and it was so, ex- such an exciting time. And, um, and that was my first practice and he went on to do great things elsewhere and, uh, and y'all know what I've done. So. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So obviously you can't be an experienced lawyer without picking up a few interesting cases along the way. And now we want to break them wide open. Yeah. Let's get right into it. So what would you say, and I thought like we've talked about a couple, but what would you say would be the most interesting case that you have worked on? 
that you can share? Now that that is just an impossible question. I'm so <laughs> I know, like, oh. but I I really um I love the story of a case I handled in Southern Mississippi. Um, this has been a long time now, but I had a case called All Care versus Progressive Insurance, and my client was All Care Incorporated, and All Care uh, was a sort of low rent budget healthcare clinic, but they did a good job, and they hired nurses um, in a and had a clinic in a part of town where a lot of people didn't have health insurance mm. and where people couldn't get help and couldn't get care. And they were the only um, outfit in town willing to take a lien from a lawyer. And this was before the Affordable Health Care Act. So if you couldn't afford insurance, you didn't have insurance. Right. Well, the insurance companies who insured the drivers in that city in southern Mississippi were more than happy for people who were injured not to be able to get health care, because think about it. If you can't get health care, you don't get bills. If you don't have bills, you can't bring a personal injury claim. If you can't bring a personal injury claim, they don't have to pay the claims. Mm. So they started a policy of declining claims from my client's clinic, All Care. Mm-hmm. And they just said that's not real treatment, and though that's not a legitimate uh, place to get treated, and we are not going to pay any claims for clients that go to All Care. Well, the personal injury lawyers in Jackson, Mississippi was the city. Mm-hmm. In Jackson, Mississippi, um, started to protest and say, these people are getting treated and you need to pay these bills. Um, and and you're, you're blackballing, effectively, the only clinic providing care in the lowest, uh, the, the lowest income zip code in America. I mean, come on. And they couldn't get any... Um, they they couldn't get any traction with that, and they couldn't get anyone to bring that case because it, it kind of felt like, I guess, it, it, it felt like a bit much for the local lawyers. They were wanting to represent these individuals who were hurting car wrecks. They weren't wanting to take on an entire industry, right? Mm-hmm. That one. <laughs> they yeah. weren't in it for that. <laughs> um, but I was. They called me. <laughs> Put me so, in. <laughs> Put me in, Coach. Um, so All Care contacted me. And uh, asked if I'd be willing to do do the case, and I spent the better part of uh, about three years going wow. back and forth to Jackson, Mississippi, and handling that case. And we we were able to explain it to the jury, most of whom were not from that zip code, but we were able to explain it to them in such a way that they awarded a seven figure verdict in in you know long time ago to a healthcare clinic. In a, in a rundown part of town, um, it, it was really a remarkable thing, and, and it was very satisfying. And I put local personal injury lawyers on the stand to say <laughs> they didn't pay this client's claim and that client's claim, and they're effectively discriminating against all care, which effectively meant they were discriminating against the uh, racially, economically, and in other ways. Yeah. So was that suit kind of a discrimination claim against all care? Because you weren't representing each individual client, yeah. right? Yeah, I was representing all care. She was, yeah. And it wasn't a discrimination case, although that was what we demonstrated was... In play. It was, that's what was going on. It was, they were um, excluding the claims of all care. So the verdict I got was for all care so that all care could continue to exist and could continue to provide care for those patients and that people who were injured and didn't have health insurance in Jackson, Mississippi could still go to all care get treated, and get their claim paid. You had mentioned that they had taken a form of payment or non-payment, an attorney lien. Yes. What is that? 
So if you don't have health insurance and you're injured in a car wreck, what do you do? You mm-hmm. go to the emergency room. Mm-hmm. A lot of people do that. Mm-hmm. You get, get one shot at that before the emergency room says you didn't pay the last bill, don't come back. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you have a lingering injury, which is so, so common, as we know from car wrecks, um, you don't have many choices of places to get treated. And, and now, thank God, we have the Affordable Care Act. But before you could get health insurance, one of your only choices was for the, the treating doctor or medical facility, like all care, um, to cut a deal with your lawyer that at the end of your case, that lawyer would promise to, to pay the medical bills. Uh-huh. And that's called an attorney's lien. Interesting. Okay. What kind of law practice area is that case? What does that fall or under? Letter of protection, really. What kind of what? What kind of practice area does that fall under? Because it's not legal <laughs> malpractice. Is it civil? What is that? It, it's civil litigation. It is. Okay. Yes. What is your most interesting legal malpractice case that you have? Mm. Wow. You, you know, do so many so, things. I know. <laughs> I, <laughs> you're so competent at everything. This is oh, going to be a two-parter or something. <laughs> I, well, I know. Um, my most interesting case uh, is always the one I'm working on at the moment. You know, that's always top of mind. And right. I always have a, a few in the queue and a few that I'm working on. I will tell you that um, the, the ones um, that... First of all, I think it's obvious I enjoy what I do. And yes. I don't just mean I enjoy it like it's um, satisfying to me as a career, although it is. I mean, it's fun, right? And so. It comes through. <laughs> we can tell. We love it. So it, it generally is fun. And, and so when I have lawyer defendants who are these crazy personalities, I mean, I, and, and lawyers, when they're back up against the wall, when they're a certain kind of lawyer who's committed malpractice and not done the right thing. And by the way, what the right thing looks like is, I'm sorry, client, I made a mistake. Here's the name and, and contact information for my professional liability carrier. Sure. Please contact them so that you're taken care of. Just like if you hit somebody in your car. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. That's what it looks like. But, but for the lawyers who, you know, run and hide and try to deny it and try to get out from under it, and it they can just lie and lie and lie and the more you lie the more they have to lie to cover it up yes. and i just keep coming and coming and coming at it <laughs> and you know i i had one lawyer who um who his his paralegal was his mama and <laughs> he and she uh had created a letter w- that said um dear client i am writing to tell you that your statute of limitations is expiring in one month and if you don't contact us um, we will not be able to file your lawsuit. Well, that letter never was received by the client, and I had a serious question about whether, when that letter had actually been created by Mama yeah. on the computer at the firm. And um, this was pre-cloud, so we didn't have to deal with it. it was in the cloud. So I hired an expert who was going to go do a forensic examination of the, the lawyer's computer. computer. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Whoa. Oh, oh, it's not the first time. Get him. Okay. So I've got this lined up, and I've sent the notice, and the um, and the lawyer claims, oh, that I no longer have that computer. Well, now we're gonna find out what happened to that say, computer. Like, computer's out in the backyard somewhere. <laughs> oh, that's close. Okay. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so I deposed the lawyer. What became of the computer? Um, I I don't. I no longer have that computer. I understand what became of it. 
Well, um, I, I got rid of it. Well, you know, there are federal laws about disposing of computers, and you can't just throw it in the trash can, so I trust you didn't just throw it in the trash can. He said, oh, yeah, no, I, I didn't just throw it in the trash can. Oh, okay, what did you do with it? Did you donate it? No, I, I didn't donate it. I was worried about somebody getting the data in it. Oh, yeah, I understand that. Okay, so what did you do with it? He said, well, um, I took an axe to it. Uh. So you took an axe to a computer? Did you really? And we're in South Georgia, so uh, okay. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. Yeah, maybe. It's possible. You know, I'm from down there. We're gonna, um, but uh, he said, yeah, I took an axe to it, and I hacked it into a bunch of pieces. A I bunch of pieces. I said, well, and um, what'd you do with those pieces? Because <laughs> <Right? laughs> you know, the, the hard drive could still be intact. Yeah. Could be. Yeah. And uh, he said, well. Then I took the pieces because I was afraid that the hard drive could still be intact, and I put them on the railroad tracks. The and railroad I let the train, tracks? I let the train run over the computer pieces that I had hacked apart with an axe. I, is, is he said this under oath? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What did he have to hide on that computer? Yeah. Did we have like cameras on the jury's faces? <laughs> I've been like. <laughs> Trying to follow them, you're like I understand you don't have it. Like, Where is it? But I'm like either you're lying under oath, or you're clearly trying to hide, hide something. something. <laughs> like either way, you're helping me. So keep talking. Yeah, we're not gonna let it go. We're not gonna let it go. I mean, you know, I can't tell you how many times in my life I've been called relentless. And when I was younger, I was kind of offended. You know, what you call me relentless? Now I'm like, yeah, I'm relentless. Yeah, of course I Serve am. Me yeah. well. Yeah. <laughs> Oh yeah. my goodness! Wow. Okay. okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I can't get over here. Like now, the, the axe wasn't enough. I know. I put I it on the train track. <laughs> I mean, I like I just bad keep all of, of my computers. I've got like stacks of computers at home. There's like computer recycling places. You I can should take probably them to. go there. Shredding companies that will like. I also have a train track drives. by my house. No, so <laughs> I might just do that. In your garage. Yeah. <laughs> so crazy. Um, so. I'm guessing one of our questions is like, what's one of the ways you'd like to see malpractice laws change? And I could probably answer it for you with the insurance, but is there another another one? way? Yes. So there is a, a um, line of cases now that, that basically holds that if a, a person whose case has been uh, reduced in value, because of the negligence of their lawyer. Mm -hmm. So if the lawyer's botched it and their case may have been worth a million dollars, now it's only worth $10,000 because the defense just wants it to go away, that if they accept any settlement, that they may have severed causation for purposes of bringing a legal malpractice case. So in other words, if you do the logical and reasonable action of settling your legal malpractice case for the lower value and then just go for the difference between the lower value and what your case was actually worth, that you actually can't bring a legal malpractice case at all. Crazy, right? Yeah. Um, so th that is a challenge right now. And um, we, we think there are paths to begin to address that by, by bringing cases that involve those issues. But that's certainly one thing I'd like to see change. That is interesting. Um, let me... So what are like some ways that you think you've made a, a bigger impact in a client's life over just, you know, settling the case Got for them? A bunch of money. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Besides yeah. that obvious one, but I, I feel like just hearing some of these things, I could think of ways I would be impacted. You know, what do you think and, and what does it mean to you? I think the biggest impact that I have in clients lives um, 
involves giving them faith in the system again. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that translates to everything. That that may mean that they um, believe in themselves again because someone believed in them. That may mean that they no longer hate all lawyers. Right. <laughs> it, mm-hmm. it may mean that they vote next time because they think, well, the system did work after all. Yeah. So I, I think it can look like a lot of different things. I have um, a lot of clients who I have kept in touch with periodically and off and on through the years. And it's been such a joy to watch them go on with their lives. Yeah. And that's, that's a part of it that, that I really, really value. Yeah. I just think about that, like of them, you know, when we talk about them calling in and they are so, their trust is so broken. They don't even want to tell you the name of the attorney, you know, that I just wonder what amount of trust that just reestablishes with them with, yeah, the, the whole field. Have you ever had to bring a case against another lawyer more than once? Ooh. Yes. I was, I was yeah. going to ask, yes. are there, are there yes. often repeats? Oh my gosh. Yeah. There's and repeat I, offenders. Yeah, I have one right now. Oh, yes. no. Is, is that or, or, more? You know, a second one. Yeah. Is that more common to have like? Do you have a stable of like guys who are it's repeat business? Yeah. <laughs> We're like, oh yeah, that old, the old Don. He's great for business. <laughs> You know, we we don't have any who repeat that often because okay. they they would have difficulty um, maintaining their practices if they repeated that often. It, it's more common that there's a cascade, right? That um, that there is a, a situation or circumstance in a law firm or in a lawyer's life that causes them a formerly competent lawyer, oftentimes, to become incompetent for some period of time. It can mm-hmm. be anything from substance abuse to a something sympathetic like a death in the family not that substance abuse isn't sympathetic but also right. um, a divorce it can be uh, any number of um, life traumas or mental illness and and so uh, you know they will mishandle more than one case I at approximately the same time oh, that's what I'm saying. yeah same it, time frame yeah i think that, that would make sense okay All right. So here at the opening statements, we not only value the stories, but we also value the lessons. We try to, you know, foster a good learning environment for our fans. We want to teach people the things you can't pick up from just reading a book, but things that you only learn from actually putting it into practice and being a lawyer. So what what would you say are some of the most valuable things that you've learned from, like, let's say the all care case? Like. Mm -hmm. Well, now, the all-care case was so unique, um, and and I really learned and had it reinforced by the, the people on that wonderful jury that um, that all people can get justice if they get the whole story and understand the situation. They All, all people can are, are capable of giving justice, I yeah. believe. Um, but uh, I think that something I see time and time again that I, I always – like to to talk about and remind lawyers of, and especially where we are today, um, where where there is so much social media and there's so much flash and glam, and um, we're we're lawyers, we're not movie stars, we're not rock stars, we're lawyers, and if you get confused about that, it's going to cause problems for you and your clients, and I always encourage lawyers as part and parcel of that to live well within your means. Don't live just within your means. And as a lawyer, if you possibly can, don't live paycheck to paycheck or intentionally put yourself in that situation um, because it can lead to situations where you feel that you have to do something, Mm -hmm. quote unquote, 
for the money. Sure. Yeah. Um, and then you can no longer use your moral compass because you've got to use your checkbook compass. And so, you know, lawyers who really extend themselves to live large can get into so much trouble. And it doesn't matter how much money they're making. In fact, there seems to be an inverse relationship between the ability to be responsible about money and how much money some lawyers make, right? Mm -hmm. So you have these lawyers who make tons of money, make terrible decisions, die broke without professional liability insurance and leave clients um, high and dry, high and, dry yeah. and commit malpractice and all these sorts of things. So, you know, we've, we've chosen a profession. And to the extent that that we remind ourselves of that, I think it's really helpful because there are so many different influences right now um, encouraging everybody to be other than professional. Yeah, that was right on the money. I was going to ask that question about what's the most valuable piece of advice you'd offer another attorney. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, there we go. Well, I still want to ask that, but I want to ask it in the sense of like if there are any young women watching, they're in law school, like what would your advice be to them? Hang in there. <laughs> Hang in there. <laughs> it's tough. Look, it's it's hard for all young lawyers. Yeah. Um and as women we uh reach different points in our careers that are pivotal. Mm -hmm. Um and especially in our young careers. So, you know, we're we may go through high school uh working really hard and performing really well at numbers that are extraordinary. We do the same and perform very well as women in college and in law school. And more and more law schools are 50% or more women. It's amazing. Um, but what's really disturbing is that after the graduation from law school, in the 20 to 30 years after that, you will see a precipitous decline in women practicing law. The numbers are outrageous. And it's because we hit these points that I think are challenging for women, including um, incorporating career and family. Yeah. Uh, I call it incorporating and not balancing because they're not two different things. They're all, we're one person. We're not balanced. It's not like we have different pieces of ourselves. Yeah. Your, your <laughs> career is your family is your, you know, the, you, it's incorporating it all into your life. Um, and then if you choose to have children, um, having, uh, and insisting upon a life partner with a fair division of labor, uh, in the home and who understands the priority of that, the importance of that. Um, and then the little things, like uh, so many professional women will practice for a brief time and change their names. And it's as if to say their professional efforts and identity don't, don't, don't matter to them. They're, they're just going to throw the name out. I mean, yeah. you know, people people who work hard for their names, like us as professionals, um, that's, that's uh, something that we shouldn't be so quick to... Uh, to change and to, because it's not just a change. We're, we're we're giving it up. We're giving up an identity. And, um, you know, it, if you if it matters what you've worked for under the identity you've had, giving up your identity is and should be a big deal. And also the naivete that that life doesn't change, so you won't have to do it again for any reason, um, is is something that I like to talk to young women about. So I know it's radical, but keep your name. <laughs> keep your name, ladies. We were just talking about name. this today. We were, we were. So, yeah. All right. I can All be right. controversial. Sorry. <laughs> no, we like that. <laughs> our, our listeners love it. Yeah. yeah. All right. So we have one final 
segment um, on the show, and it puts you a little bit in the hot seat, um, and it's <laughs> our closing argument. Yes, and again, we are going to be playing a game of Plead the Fifth, where we're going to ask you three hard-hitting questions, buckle in, and you can only pass or plead the fifth to one of them. Okay? <laughs> Makes sense. <laughs> okay. Um, right. I'm ready. So mine is like it's a two-parter because the first one is not like hard-hitting enough. <laughs> the some of the experts you hire. So if you're working a um, a personal injury malpractice case or you're working a contract case, you said you bring in experts. Are those experts sometimes other attorneys? They're almost always other attorneys. Have you ever had to sue one of them? No. She only hires the best. (laughs) (laughs) Nope. No, I have not. And I've not even uh, known of any to commit malpractice where I was conflicted out or something like that. (laughs) Okay. Dang Um, it. That was a good one. I'm really trying here. I know. I know. Um, have you ever helped a friend or family like like bail them out of something using your pull <laughs> in the legal field? Oh, well, <laughs> I'm sorry. You, I, I lied about my first case. I guess I have to revisit that. So I'm busted. Oh. My, oh. My, oh, yep, yep. I didn't think about it. Oh. My first case was representing my baby sister in the city of Atlanta traffic court. <laughs> And I had just become a lawyer, and I had some business cards printed for the occasion. <laughs> and I went, I'm, a, I'm a real lawyer. It says on the that's right. Card. That's right. And I went and I defended her, and she had no defense because she had rear-ended a guy um, pull it on, an, on an, like an entrance ramp to the interstate, and he he had, his car had stopped, and she just rear-ended him, and I was there, all Perry Mason, with my business card ready to <laughs> take on the car. And the best thing happened, y'all. The greatest thing happened. He was an older man, and he said, this young woman hit me, and I didn't do anything. I can't help it if my engine chugs out. Oh. What? 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 There it is. (laughs) You were like, yes. It's the business cards. They did it. They did it. Okay. Okay. All right. right. Is this the final one? This is the last one. Um, You had a really good one for the first one. Have you ever um received a call from a potential new client and they tell you the lawyer's name and you're like oh yes i can't wait to sue that person <laughs> i don't even care what we're suing for i've been oh let me at them <laughs> this is pro bono if it has to be oh you know i wish i had a juicier answer the truth is yes <laughs> but um, because I felt that way, I did not take the case. Oh, really? Oh, that's interesting. Was it that first firm who wouldn't give you the job offer? No. Okay. <laughs> they, would, they would be on my radar. <laughs> <laughs> no, in fact, they've been great supporters of mine ever since. And they send me business and it's Do all they? good. Yes, okay. that's yes, good. Oh, okay. Well, oh. <laughs> We every we need better questions. We need, better we need questions. harder yeah. questions. <laughs> oh, man. Anyway, thank you, Lindley, so much for joining us on this week's episode of the Opening Statements Podcast. Yes, thank you. Um, to everyone listening, you can check us out at Hyperchat Social. We're on all the social media channels. And remember to give us a five-star review everywhere that you get your podcast. We'll catch you next time. Case, Case closed. closed.